Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. No one is immune from cybersecurity attacks, it seems. Just days ago, several senior Microsoft executives fell victim to a password spray attack coming from Russia. Did the company downplay how serious this was, and did it fail to use some basic best practices? We get analysis now from Stanford University cyber analyst and former White House senior director for cyber policy, A.J. Grotto. Mr. Grotto, good to have you with us. It's good to be here. Thanks for having me. And just review what happened here. What is a spray, a tactic, and what happened to the Microsoft execs? A password spray attack is when a threat adversary tries the same password across many accounts. So it's an attempt to guess a password. In this case, they guessed right and were able to break into this legacy non-production test tenant account, which is essentially a test environment. And uh, we're then able to use that account to get access uh, to email accounts that belonged to senior executives and employees working in Microsoft's security and legal teams. And what kind of a password would you need to be immune from a spray attack? Because if you use those generated, suggested passwords, a lot of programs have, you know, they're 15 characters, totally random. Yeah, this this probably wasn't a very complex password. Uh, the other factor here is there was no multi-factor authentication. Um, you know, using that sort of second means of logging in, the text message or the authentication app, which which is a security no-no these days. But I mean, a simple password can be found by a spray attack, what types of passwords can it find? Like where you go around the perimeter of the keyboard or your name and birthday, that kind of thing? That kind of stuff. Yeah. Password one, admin one, you know, not very complex passwords. Passwords that that have, you know, uh, known words in them, English words. Um, it's, it's another no-no. Um, and uh, a complex password probably would have would have gone a long way towards preventing this from happening. Right. So these are programs that generate these types of things. Are they context-based? That is, okay, this is Microsoft. We know the person's name. And from public records, you can get birthdays and stuff. Could it be that they, they designed the passwords for this particular spray attack iteration? It's possible. We don't, we don't know. Um, you know, there, there are still um, details about the attack that, that, that Microsoft hasn't released yet. And I suspect we'll, we'll learn more in the coming weeks as, as details begin to emerge about what happened and, frankly, what, what other companies, what, what other victims may have been affected by uh, the same threat actor. You have looked at this in some detail, and we know we can attribute the source of the attack too, correct? Yeah, this, this was a, a, a you know, Russian, Russian intelligence. To be clear, you know, Microsoft was a victim here. That said, this attack was like parking your, your car in a rough neighborhood leaving uh, your door unlocked and your valuables in plain sight. This kind of, of, of episode should not happen, especially for a company that, that, that touts its security bona fides the way that Microsoft does. Right. I was going to say, what are the learnings here? Because a lot of companies are probably looking at this and saying, well, how are my passwords? Well, you know, one learning is use complex passwords. The other is uh, use multi-factor authentication. And this is the latest um, in a string of security problems at Microsoft. Um, in, in 2021, uh, 30,000 organizations Email servers were hacked due to a Microsoft Exchange server flaw. Last year, Chinese hackers breached uh, U.S. government emails via a Microsoft cloud exploit. Three years ago, it was at the center of, of the SolarWinds attack, uh, which, which was actually carried out by the same threat actor that, get, that got Microsoft in this recent episode. And now you have the federal government, in some cases in large numbers of people, uh, are using and lots of agencies are using Microsoft 365 Cloud for the basic collaboration tools, Office, if you will, that everyone has. 
and therefore they're not in your own. All of the data and all of the applications are not in the federal servers anymore. They're in Microsoft servers. How should agencies think about this? Microsoft has uh, something like 85% of the market for the federal government's productivity software, which is to say it has a stranglehold on that market. Well, the government bought it by choice, we should say. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, and, and although, you know, I would argue that the government's also locked in, right? Uh, because Microsoft makes it difficult to switch. There are switching costs that make it not, not a straightforward proposition to, to shift to a new to a new vendor that's the way you might, you know, sell a car and buy a new car. So I'm a, I'm, a, I'm still a big believer in, in in cloud. You know, there there are, there are security benefits, there are cost benefits, there are efficiency benefits, and so the answer here is not for organizations, federal government or otherwise, to move away from the cloud. It's it's to support more competition in the marketplace for cloud services, uh, so that customers can vote with their their dollars and and switch providers if they're not happy with the the service they're getting from their incumbent uh, provider. We're speaking with AJ Grotto. He's senior director of the program on geopolitics, technology, and governance at Stanford. University and a former White House Senior Director for Cyber Policy. And getting back to the cyber question here with Microsoft, when you have cloud-hosted type of thing like this, each one of your people has a an account with their name on it and a password. And if the agency chooses to have multi-factor, then that's what they have. Are these like bathrooms in small houses where there might be a door on either end? And therefore, there's a back door through Microsoft into clients' accounts just as much as there well, is a front door through the client. Well, these you know these security problems at, at Microsoft's uh, corporate uh, headquarters do speak to a risk there. I mentioned uh, the Solar Winds attack from three years ago. You know, Microsoft products were at the center of that attack, and also Microsoft itself was was compromised by the Russian threat actor. We have we have a similar situation here where a Russian threat actor has been able to get inside of Microsoft systems. Uh, in this case, the, the the running theory is that the threat actor was looking to understand what Microsoft understood about it, Microsoft's own research into this particular threat actor. And the fact that the adversary was able to get that kind of access is worrisome. It's it's because there's more to the story here than I think just the, the the password spray attack. The fact that the adversary was able to get access to email accounts that belong to senior executives. I'm not sure how that's possible unless this particular test account, unless the the, the system that the threat actors compromised had administrator privileges that allowed it to grant access. That's also a big no-no. There's there's a basic security principle. Uh, called the least privilege principle. And basically it means you give a system access to only the information and resources it needs to fulfill its purpose. Giving this account administrator privileges would seem to violate the least uh, privilege principle. Right. And a smart executive, say, in finance probably would say, don't give me access. Make sure my account can't get to certain places because that's how you have deniability and safety. Right. What we've learned so far from from public disclosures by Microsoft is there are at least two problems here. You've got the password problems, as well as this this second question of how the adversary was then able to swim around uh, Microsoft's networks and gain, gain access to these executives' emails. Right. So my question then is if, whether through phishing or through a password spray, a hacker can get the corporate account information of the cloud supplier, can it also use that means to get to the information of the clients of the cloud? It's possible. Cloud companies obviously, you know, have have a really strong incentive to, to prevent that from happening. But I think, you know, we we see these incidents going after, call it the Fort Knox of of cloud, Microsoft. You know, if you, if you can get break into Fort Knox, you've all of a sudden got access to um, to all the riches that are stored inside, and 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 so that 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 is a, a major concern. And I think Microsoft has some explaining to do still. I suppose if you could get into a test environment or a development environment, you could do things to the products under development and under test also. 
also, probably. Yeah, you could. There was actually another vulnerability announced about a development environment in Microsoft Azure that that had a, a flaw that would allow adversaries to, to to mess with code. If organizations had updated their software, they wouldn't they wouldn't be exposed to this particular um, this particular threat. But again, it, it speaks to um, the the continued risk that poor security practices can can pose to organizations. And should Google and Amazon and their cloud operations fold their hands in satisfaction here or not? Well, no. I, I mean, look. I, I to me, as I come back to the competition point, what we need is more competition, and that means that you know Amazon and Google ought to beat Microsoft on security. These episodes point to a real vulnerability in, in Microsoft when it comes to security. A.J. Grotto is Senior Director of the Program on Geopolitics, Technology, and Governance at Stanford University and also former White House Senior Director for Cyber Policy. Thanks so much for joining me. It's been great to be here. Thank you, Tom. And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to The Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people? And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Right. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're gonna go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when as a leader that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus. Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful? So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture. Because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot 
in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, And I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank you. Uh, having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.